0: Our text for today is John 10. I'm going to open up with verses 11 through 18 today. A little bit different than last week. I think we did 1 through 13 last week. We're doing 11 through 18 today for our opening text. This is our Messiah speaking. And He says, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. The hired man, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired man and doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I am laying down my life, so I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. May Yahweh bless His Word to our hearts today. That text moves me every time I read it. Hallelujah. It is a difficult process to rework a set of beliefs that you have held for a long time. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. It's excruciating at times. I remember when I first started to use the name Yahweh. I was 16 years old and for the first 16 years of my life I had called the Creator God, Lord, and Jesus. And I memorized a lot of verses using those words. So when I started to say Yahweh, it sounded strange and foreign to my tongue. And it took me a while. I felt weird. Now I feel weird doing the other because I'm so accustomed to using Yahweh's name. right? So this wasn't strange to Hebrew Scripture, but it was strange to this Pentecostal Christian. (laughs) It was strange same thing with the Sabbath I had never observed a holy day of rest for the first 16 years of my life I went to church every Sunday every Sunday night and every Wednesday night and extra times during revival if you were a Pentecostal growing up you know what I'm talking about the only time we didn't go is if somebody was deathly ill and then even if you were ill maybe you might go to church anyhow because praise God he's a healer <laughs> so I had never kept Sabbath So when I started keeping Sabbath, and then I remember the first time riding in the pump truck over there in the passenger seat going to work on Sunday morning, I remember I looked over at my co-worker and I said, well, I guess I'm working on Sunday now. (laughs) Back then my father-in-law used to tell me, that's back when we kept Sabbath on Saturday. He said, our Savior worked every Sunday, but he did good on the Sabbath. (laughs) And so I started telling people that. Then we found out sometimes he worked on Saturday too. (laughs) But it was different. It was weird. It was excruciating, changing my long-held, beloved beliefs. Um, it wasn't like I was raised to be a bad guy. I was raised to be one of the good guys. I had great parents. But I had to retrain my mind in life to fit the Holy Scripture. I didn't want to fit something into the Bible. I wanted to read the Bible and try to fit my life into here. Right? I wanted to mold my life in accordance with the Word of Yahweh. So the subject that I'm teaching on This month is like the name Yahweh or the Sabbath for me. I have believed that the atonement, the word atonement, I think it was probably coined the best that history tells us by a man named William Tyndale, one of the great uh, Protestant reformers who was burned at the stake for translating the Bible into the language of the common man, the English language. William Tyndale coined many words that we know And he coined atonement and I think he had in mind at one, at one meant. Reconciliation is what it means. Reconciliation, forgiveness, how that us and the Creator are reconciled together. When it comes to Yeshua's death in particular, I had in my mind that Yeshua's death did something in a certain way for my whole life up until about three years ago when I was introduced to some things that I'd never heard before. It's getting to where that isn't as common as it used to be because I've studied the Bible now for 26, 27 years for myself. So it's not as common that I hear something I've never heard. But sometimes it still happens, Brother Sandy. Where somebody will say something and I'm like, man, I've been studying the Bible this whole time and I've never heard that before. I get excited when that happens. It doesn't always turn out to be true what I hear. But I get excited. I like to hear new things, fresh things to me. When I first heard these things, I could see that there was some truth there. But man, when your brain has been programmed to think one way and somebody or something comes along and challenges your programming, it is very hard to shift gears and look at something with new glasses on. I've gotten my notes here to mention Brother TJ's last sermon on Acts 2 that I've listened to twice now in addition to when he taught it. Acts 2, 2 through 4 and the reason for the gift of languages. Some of the things, most of the things that TJ taught in that lesson, I already understood and knew. But there were two things in particular that he brought up that I had never heard in my whole life. And one of them made me grunt real loud when we were here in the congregation. Because at the end, he said, he had been taught, and so had I his entire life, that the reason the apostles or the disciples in Acts 2 were given the gift of languages is so that they could spread the gospel message in a quicker fashion. And that's what I had thought based on my own studies. And then when he brought up how that they could have already and had been hearing the wonderful works of Yahweh in the Hebrew tongue in the synagogues, they had heard the wonderful works of Yahweh in the Hebrew tongue. These were all devout Jewish men, all devout Hebrews at the feast. These weren't murderers or adulterers or thieves. These were blameless, righteous men and women. And they were beginning to hear the wonderful works of Yahweh that they could have already heard in Hebrew, but they were hearing them in their own dialects from the the lands in the diaspora where they had been scattered. And when He said that, that's what my mind did when I was sitting there. And then when he said, you're going to have to wait till next time till I finish, I was thinking, oh boy, I'm not going to wait till next time. I'm going to call him this week and find out <laughs> more about it. He and I have talked about it. But remember when Brother TJ began to teach on Acts chapter 2 and he said he wanted all of us, and this is what we should always do, he wanted all of us to try to wipe everything from our mind and try to give this a fresh reading, a fresh study. And buddy, when you do that, and you're really serious and honest with the text, I guarantee you there will always be something there that you had not seen before because you're trying to read it with fresh eyes. Well, that's what I've had to do on this subject, and it has not been easy. And I've been meditating and going over it for the last two or three years. I ran across this N.T. Wright quote this week that I think is profound. N.T. Wright is, or I think was, used to be a bishop in the Church of England. Very smart Christian man. But this quote was profound. He said this, quote, It all becomes so complicated, people grumble. And what they really mean is, I am so used to reading this passage one way that I find it hard to switch and consider other options. End of quote. (laughs) You know, this past week I recently explained the Lunar Sabbath to someone online and I barely scratched the surface. I gave like a two-paragraph explanation You know what the response was? And this is all too common of a response. That all confuses me. And God's not the author of confusion. So it can't be right. I am so used to reading this passage one way that I find it hard to switch and consider other options. Have we been guilty of that before? I know I have. Somebody says something to me and it resonates. I know there's at least a grain of truth there. But I don't like it because it upsets my apple cart And so, I'm so used to reading this passage one way that I find it hard to consider the switch to another option. Anything you hear for the first time can be confusing. I've told people that I've mentored and discipled over the years. Coming out of confusion is confusing. (laughs) You've been taught one way so long and all of a sudden everything gets turned upside down. It's confusing at first. And praise Yahweh, we serve a merciful, mighty one that doesn't require us to understand everything in our bedroom overnight. (laughs) That's what Acts 15 is all about. We believe that they'll be saved in the same way that we are, by the grace of the Almighty. Let's start them off on these elementary things and then they'll go to the synagogue and they'll hear Moses be read and they'll learn and they'll grow. I'm so thankful Yahweh is merciful. Just because you're confused on something, the first time you hear it, doesn't mean the devil is causing your confusion. Sometimes it's truth that you're hearing. You know what we need to do? Slow down and say, you know what, I might not be understanding this right. Trust me, Brother TJ mentioned that about the Hebrew language versus the dialects. At first I thought, I don't want to switch what I think about this. That was my first thought, but that was the flesh. (laughs) And then the more I thought about it, I went back and studied and listened to his sermon over again. Yeah, I can see it. It's right. My entire life, I have believed that when the Bible teaches that Yeshua died for our sins, that it means that Yahweh put Yeshua to death in our place. The Almighty doled out the penalty that should have went towards me, and He put it on Yeshua the wrath of Yahweh against sin was placed upon the back of Yeshua. And I've used Isaiah 53 verse 10 here for this where it says it pleased Yahweh to bruise Him or some Bible say but the Lord was pleased to crush Him. I promise you that I'll cover that text at a later time, not today though. On the surface, this makes sense. It had to have made sense for me to think it and for other people to think it. It had to have made sense. The example that I've given countless times in conversation is this. Let's say that you're standing before a judge and you've racked up an enormous amount of traffic fines. $50,000, let's say. But you don't have the money to pay the fines. You have no way to get the money. And then all of a sudden, I'm standing in the back of the courtroom. You're up at the front in front of the judge He or she is about to lay the gavel down. I almost said she because I'm used to watching Judge Judy on TV. (laughs) He or she, a man or woman, can be a righteous judge according to the Scriptures. I'm standing in the back of the courtroom and out of sheer mercy and compassion upon you, I have a briefcase with $50,000. I come up to you and I say, here, you take this and you pay your fine. So the wealth you got from me, I took your penalty, you took my wealth. You can pay what you owe and you're forgiven. I have told that to so many people so many times and I have explained this is how the cross should be understood. You were the guilty party and Yeshua paid the price for you by taking the punishment from Yahweh's wrath. With the example of a monetary fine, this illustration works, but I want to press it a little bit further here. What serious crime can be satisfied By paying a monetary fine. Let's say somebody's guilty of murder. Does a judge, even in America, give the murderer an option? Well, i tell you what, if you give me a million dollars, I'll let you go. Is that just? No. What serious crime can be satisfied with a monetary fine? A man's standing guilty of first degree murder? He's murdered someone in cold blood. There's multiple eyewitnesses. He confesses to it. He's guilty. He's sentenced to be put to death. Let's say all of a sudden the man's mother is in the courtroom and she stands up and she's crying and she's like, I know my son has done wrong, but he's my son and I love him dearly in spite of all this. I'll step in and take his punishment. Put me to death instead of my son. Now, think with me about this. You do not have to answer right now. All I'm doing is trying to stir up your minds. I recognize this may be the first time Some of you have heard any of this. I've been thinking about it for a couple years now. Is that just for the murderer's mother to stand up and say, put me to death instead of my son? Is that just that her, the innocent, should be punished for her son, the guilty? Can the judge put the innocent mother to death and let the guilty son go free? See, when you push the illustration or example further, a fallacy shows up. I cannot tell you why. I haven't seen this before in the past. Maybe I've been studying other subjects and it just didn't come up. But I see it now. Let me read you an illustrative story from a book that I'm studying right now by an Anabaptist named Philip Hess titled Penal Substitution on Trial, How Does the Death and Life of Jesus Save Us? He writes on page 3 of this book, quote, Once there was a judge who had reason to be angry. A band of wicked men had molested his daughter. Now they were brought to the bar and he had a chance to throw the book at them, a chance for revenge and to make them suffer for their crime. He brought the gavel down for a guilty verdict, but before they were hauled off to the whipping post, the judge's own son stepped forward and he said, Dad, I know that you are just and will not be satisfied until someone is punished for this crime. I want to take these men's punishment." The judge was pleased by the character of his son. You are right, he said. A crime has been done. Justice will be satisfied as long as someone is punished for it. The son was hauled off to the whipping post and justice was served. End of quote. How does that story make you feel? Is justice really served when an innocent party receives the punishment that the guilty party deserves? It works if the penalty is just monetary. It works when we start pressing the illustration to serious sins, serious crimes, I think it collapses. It doesn't work. Now, I opened again today with John 10. I'm loving this text right now. I'm reading it every day. John 10 verse 1, going all the way to verse 18. It's a lovely text. And it is there that we get the concept from Yeshua's own mouth that He's going to lay down His life for the sheep. That's a sacrifice. He says the Father loves that He's willing to do this. But Yeshua does not attribute the taking of His life to His Father in that text. He does say, I lay my life down on my own. And there's an understanding to that. I'll briefly say this, to that. That means that He could have stopped what was taking place, but He chose not to. That's all that means. It doesn't mean somebody else didn't kill Him. It means He could have stopped it. He had the power to stop it by the authority of Yahweh, but he had a greater purpose in mind, so he lays his life down on his own. But just before that, he speaks in illustration of a wolf that comes for the sheep. The picture that he gives us is this. There's a difference between the good shepherd, the owner of the sheep, and the man who's hired to watch after the sheep. The man who is hired sees the wolf coming, gets scared, and he leaves. The good shepherd sees the wolf coming and he fights for the sheep to the point of laying his life down for the sheep. The shepherd loves his flock, even with the wolf. In this case of the good shepherd, the sheep are saved because the shepherd gave up his life to the wolf. A wolf, we all know, is the arch enemy of sheep. I believe, in my studies, that the wolf depicts the devil, depicts Satan the arch enemy of almighty yahweh and thus the arch enemy of the sheep somehow some way yeshua's death for our sins is at the hand of the wolf and not at the hand of the father the father is pleased with his heroic noble sacrifice because he's giving up his life so that others will have life on one hand it makes the father sad but on the other hand how great is it to have a son who will give up his own life so that others would get to live, well Yeshua later says in John 15 verse 13, "No one has greater love than this that someone would lay down his life for his friends." First John 3:16a also says, "This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us." John 15:13 and first John 3:16 give us the concept of a sacrifice, but let me explain it by way of illustration. What if TJ and I were somewhere and there was some crazy armed robber that approached me with a gun pulled wanting my wallet or my car or whatever. And instead of TJ fleeing the scene when he saw the armed robber, he saw his brother, his friend, me, in danger. And as the gunman was about to shoot me, TJ jumped in front of me and took the bullet and TJ died instead of me and the gunman Fled off because he was scared of the police or whatever around the corner. In that case, Brother T.J., out of his love, sacrificed his life for his friend, a fellow human. That's a human sacrifice. That is a human sacrifice that Yahweh doesn't condemn in the Scriptures. Doesn't condemn in His Word. Here's another point to think about. There is nowhere in the Torah... In the Pentateuch, the law of Moshe, that allows for a human to be ritually sacrificed to Yahweh. That's right. Now, I hope you brought your thinking caps on. We, we're going to get deep here. <laughs> deep, call it to the deep, the prophet said. Think with me. Let's stretch our minds. When you think about sacrifices, what do you think about? Clean animals right. placed on altars, throat slit, blood poured out. Sometimes the animal is eaten. Sometimes it's burned completely. Yahweh never in His Torah calls for that to be done towards Him to a human being. That's right. He doesn't call for that. We do see drink offerings, wine and beer. We see grain offerings, we see flour offerings, but never humans. What we do see among the pagan religions of old, when you study the pagan religions of old, we see human sacrifice brought to a God in order to appease the God's wrath. The God is angry and the God requires that a human be sacrificed to Him so that He can be merciful again to the nation. Yahweh actually condemns this in His law. In Leviticus 18.21, World English Bible, it says, You shall not give any of your children as a sacrifice to Moloch. You shall not profane the name of your Mighty One. I am Yahweh. There's a footnote in my HCSB Bible that says, An ancient Near Eastern God speaking of Molech, to whom child sacrifices were offered by fire. And it gives some parallel texts. Now, I have known about this for a very long time, but I kind of just shoved it into the back of my mind because I didn't know for sure or completely how to reconcile Yeshua's sacrifice with there being a command against human sacrifice. Okay, Some people reconcile it by bringing up Yahweh's instruction to Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah, Genesis 22. Rowan is learning Genesis 22 now in our Scripture memorization lessons. She's going over verses 1 through 2. I told her, I said, that's exciting because Brother Matthew's part of his sermon is on Genesis 22. She got excited when I said that. Some people bring up this to try to justify human sacrifice to Yahweh. If you know the story, if you're a good Bible student though, you know that Yahweh stops Abraham before he slits the throat of Isaac. Because of the pictures that we see in Bible story books, we see an angel coming down and grabbing hold of Abraham's hand. A couple of mornings ago I had that in my notes and I went back and I said, I need to go back and read Genesis 22 and I said, it never says an angel grabbed Abraham's hand. I've been looking at the pictures too much. (laughs) It's like them big stone tablets that Charlton Heston came down off the mountain with, right? That's not what they look like. When you read the story, read the account, the angel calls out, it's probably with a loud voice, a shout from heaven. He calls out and says, Abraham, stop. Abraham, don't do this. The angel of Yahweh. Yahweh speaking through the angel. A good Bible student also knows that this is called a test in Genesis 22 and 1. Rowan said this today. She said he was testing him. And when Abraham and Isaac were walking with the wood and the knife to the place of sacrifice, Isaac who by the way wasn't a little boy, according to some extra biblical writings in Jewish literature and also in like the book of Jasher and other books as well, Isaac was a grown man. Maybe in his 20s, maybe even in his 30s, some say. Well, Isaac says, Dad, we've got the wood, we've got the knife. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? They're walking up to the place. And Abraham says in Genesis 22 verse 8, He says, the Almighty will provide for Himself the Lamb for a burnt offering, My Son. When I was growing up, this verse sometimes was used for the oneness doctrine because in the King James it says, God Himself will provide the Lamb. And they would use that to say that God would become the Lamb. I think that's anachronistic. I think it's reading later theology back into the text of Genesis. I think if we look at the text in Hebrew, what Yahweh is, what Abraham is saying here is that Yahweh will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, an animal. Not that Yahweh will provide himself as a sacrifice, as a lamb, but Yahweh will provide for himself to be given to him, the lamb. And that's exactly what happened there in that text. It appears by this, Genesis 22 and 8, that Abraham had faith already before it ever happened he ever laid Isaac on the altar, that Yahweh would be the provider. And that's exactly what happens. After this, after the angel stops Abraham, lo and behold, there's what caught in the thicket? A ram. A ram, a clean animal. It's caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham offers up the ram as a burnt offering. And Abraham names that place on that mountain. He, He names the place Yahweh Yireh which means Yahweh will see to it or Yahweh will provide. He names the place. So even a place can have the sacred name applied to it according to Genesis chapter 22. Now, look at what I found here in my IVP Bible background commentary. It's been sitting on my shelf. I never read it on this text. (laughs) On page 53 of this Bible background commentary, I highly recommend you buy this for your studies. It says this, quote, Child sacrifice. In the ancient Near East, the god that provides fertility, ale, is also entitled to demand a portion of what has been produced. This is expressed in the sacrifice of animals, grain, and children. Texts from Phoenician and Punic colonies, like Carthage in North Africa, describe the ritual of child sacrifice as a means of ensuring continued fertility. The biblical prophets and the laws in Deuteronomy and Leviticus expressly forbid this practice, but that also implies that it continued to occur. You see what he's saying there? The reason that it was forbidden is because it was still happening at the time that Yahweh gave the commandment. In faith, the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac suggests that Abraham was familiar with human sacrifice and was not surprised by Yahweh's demand. Let's stop right there for a second. I've always wondered how in the world was Abraham so willing and quick to go and offer his son up when Yahweh said, I want you to kill your son, the one you love, your only son, your unique son, the one that was given by promise when you and Sarah were too old to have children. Go and kill your son. And Abraham says, okay, I'll do it. The reason Abraham said that is because Yahweh had not expressly forbidden this act in His law yet. And because ancient Near Eastern religions practiced this, and because Abraham's dad was an idol worshiper, he thought, okay, I serve Yahweh. He called me from the Ur of Chaldees. I'm going to do what he said. Then later on in the account, he finds out, oh, this mighty one doesn't actually accept human sacrifice. He provides an animal in its place, which makes a whole lot of sense. At the end it says, However, the story also provides a model for the substitute of an animal for a human sacrifice that clearly draws a distinction between Israelite practice and that of other cultures. End of that quote from the IVP Bible Background Commentary. That is extraordinary. Now, Yeshua is called a sacrifice in the Bible. Sure. It's blatant in many places. Many places says. I think of one in 1 Peter 2.24 it says he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree so we're not going to start ripping pages out of the Bible we're going to believe that I still believe it I just think it's to be understood in a different way okay. Yeshua was called a sacrifice in scripture and if we go back catch this if we go back to the example I gave remember where TJ jumped in front of the gunman and took the bullet for me he sacrificed His life for me at the hands of a criminal. That is a human sacrifice, but that's a human sacrifice that Yahweh doesn't condemn. It's not a ritual sacrifice where you're placing a human on the altar and slitting a human's throat, right? Same with a good shepherd who dies at the hand of the wolf in order to save the sheep. It's one person laying down their life so that someone or something or some group Can continue to live because they love that person or that group. It's not a ritual sacrifice like an animal on an altar, but it is still a sacrifice. A couple of examples. Think of a loving father who pushes his child out of the way when all of a sudden he sees a car coming and the child's in danger. The child lives. The father may get injured or he might even die. That's a human sacrifice. But it's not the type that Yahweh condemns in the Torah. Think of times of war when men go on a battlefield and they almost know for sure that they'll lose their life. But their life is lost for the betterment of those who continue to live. Again, human sacrifice, but not the type that Yahweh condemns. So there truly is no greater love than someone who lays down their life for another. And we see the love of Yahweh first and then the love of the Messiah and that He laid down His life for us on the cross. But was it at the hands of an angry father? Was the father angry and in order to appease the father's wrath, he had to have a human ritually sacrificed to him? Or did Yeshua die at the hands of the wicked? Well, he says out of his own mouth, the wolf comes to get the sheep. I don't think Yahweh is the wolf. As a matter of fact, my dad asked me after my sermon last week, he said, who do you think is the porter? Remember at the beginning of John 10, he says, the doorkeeper opens the door? I think that's Yahweh. (laughs) Who is the one that opens our heart to believe in Yeshua? Yahweh. Some could say the Holy Spirit. I had that thought and then I started looking at my commentaries and a lot of the reformers, like John Gill, Albert Barnes, they take the same position. Yahweh is the one that opens the door. It gives us new life. I don't think the wolf is Yahweh. I think the wolf is the devil. And I believe that somehow Yeshua gave himself over It was a noble sacrifice to Yahweh in the sense that Yahweh said, Wow, look at what my son's doing. It wasn't easy. I believe that Yeshua... 1 Peter 1 says Yeshua was foreknown from the foundations of the earth, right? So I believe it was predestined. That didn't make it easy for Yeshua. Don't think it was a walk in the park. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before He died. and He prayed. He said, Father, if it's all possible, let this cup pass from Me. But, but... Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. And He went to the cross. Nobody had to force Him. He laid His life down. I want you to think about this. Sacrificial animals are not tortured. Were the animals that were sacrificed to Yahweh in the Torah, were those animals spat upon, mocked, beaten, whipped bloody, and then hung on a cross? No. Matter of fact, in Hebrew practice, you know what it's taught? It's taught that the kosher slaughter of an animal is to be done as quickly and painless as possible. Out of respect for the animal. Now Yahweh created the animals to be received for food and thanksgiving. Not the unclean ones. The unclean ones don't have nothing nothing to worry about around the Jansen farm. (laughs) When our basset hounds ain't got to worry in the world about us <laughs> slaughtering them for food Yahweh gave the clean animals for food though right? That doesn't mean you can't take care of a cow and raise a cow and give a cow a great life but when time comes for slaughter day we thank Yahweh for the life of the cow I think it's okay to thank the animal as well in some sense you slaughter, you eat the animal it's perfectly fine. You don't torture the animal you don't mock the animal. What would you think? Brother TJ and I have been uh, helping each other to slaughter and skin and get the Passover lamb ready for many years now, what would you think if you saw me and TJ back there mocking and spitting on the Passover lamb? It would be a mockery, wouldn't it? I would I would leave. If I went up showed up to a Pesach and they were doing that, I'd leave. It's a mockery. What if we got out a, a flagellum, a cat of nine tails, and we started beating the lamb? No, Yahweh doesn't call for that in His Torah. We don't get a whip out and torture the lamb before we slaughter it. So, think about this. Do we really think that Yeshua was a ritual sacrifice to Yahweh when He was mocked, when He was beat, when He was tortured, when He was whipped bloody, when He was hung on a cross? That's not what you did to a sacrificial animal. So, He wasn't that type of a sacrifice. He was a sacrifice in the sense that He gave up His life to the enemy and it somehow procured our salvation. What the first man Adam lost, the second man Adam gained back. So, was the Almighty pleased with his son being tortured? Or does it make more sense that Yahweh's arch enemy, Satan, the devil, the serpent, the wolf, would do that to the son of the Almighty? I know what's going through your mind. It went through mine. There's some text in Isaiah 53. But don't forget, Brother TJ taught on this. There is a text at the beginning of Isaiah 53 that says that when all this was happening to Yeshua, there were people that esteemed Him smitten by God and afflicted. And the understanding is He really wasn't. I'll explain some texts. I'll give you a different understanding of a few verses in Isaiah 53 at a later time. Now, we do see some illustrative parallels in animal sacrifices in Yeshua. Once again, I'm a whole Bible man. I believe all the Bible. I don't do away with any of it. I want you to look at these parallels. Let's think about them here. Isaiah 53 says that Yeshua was led like a lamb to the slaughter or a sheep before its shearers. Quiet. The illustrative parallel is not that Yeshua is now a ritual animal sacrifice, slit in his throat. But it's that he didn't open his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile back. 1 Peter 2 talks about this, right? He opened not his mouth. He did not have any guile come out of his mouth. He loved his enemies. Just as a lamb doesn't cry out when it's slaughtered. If you've seen us slaughter a Passover lamb, you know it doesn't make a noise. Sister Roseanne, I'm sure, has sheared sheep. They might let out a small bag every now and then. (laughs) But they're quiet. They're not like a goat. I've slaughtered a goat before for meat. (laughs) It's not fun. Um, I remember one time Brother Arnold and I were killing a goat just, just for the meat. And I told Arnold, I said, somebody's going to think we got a human back here. (laughs) The way this goat is hollering. It is a tremendous difference between a sheep and a goat. Yeshua was like a sheep. He didn't cry out. The Apostle Paul calls Yeshua our Passover in 1 Corinthians 5. Well, Yeshua was killed at Passover time, but the image is not a one-to-one correlation. We can't take everything about the Passover lamb and apply that to Yeshua. There's a point that Paul is making. We know that we can't apply everything because a Passover lamb wasn't flogged and nailed to a cross. Yeshua is our Passover in this sense. His death accomplishes deliverance in some way. Just like the Passover lamb's death accomplished deliverance for the Israelites from Egypt. Illustrative parallel, but let's not read too much into it, right? Another example. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.19. He writes about the precious blood of the Messiah like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. Peter's point here, once again, is not to one-to-one correlate, but his point is to get us to think about Yeshua's sinless life. It's just like when we're inspecting the lamb for Passover, the Scripture says it must be tamim, which means complete, whole, lacking nothing, perfect. It's got to have all its legs. It can't be sick. It can't have the scours, right? can't be limping around or blind. Yahweh says, take that give it to your governor. Don't bring it to me. That's the point. The lamb's without defect. Yeshua's without defect. That doesn't mean without defect in body. It means He, he didn't sin. So there's an illustrative parallel here. I realize that this sermon might make you have more questions than answers. But then again, maybe it is stretching your mind in a way that has not been stretched before. During the Feast of Tabernacles, Brother Sandy had me do a calf workout when we stood on the the thing and we we went up and down with our calves. Now, I'm not used to doing a calf workout. So my calves were sore for three days. (laughs) We'd sit down for our Deuteronomy study. I'd get up my calves would hurt so bad. But it's because I'm not used to doing the workout. But the workout is meant for my good, right? It's meant to build up my calf muscles, right? So, we need to work out our spiritual muscles. We need to stretch our brain and think outside of our box. Remember, I don't want to believe it. It's confusion. That's code word for I don't like it, so I don't want to read anything into it that I don't already believe in <laughs> T. Wright quote we don't want to be like that we want to think deeper in order to see if what we've been believing is really scriptural as I do my final closing today let me assure you 100% Brother Matthew still believes that Yeshua died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures I still believe all of that I believe he was wounded for our transgressions Isaiah 53 verse 5 I still believe all of that Because the Holy Prophet says it. What I no longer believe is the concept of Yahweh pouring out His wrath on the innocent Yeshua instead of the guilty me and you. I don't believe what's called in theology penal substitutionary atonement. I no longer hold to that view because I honestly don't think it's the scriptural or early Christian view. I believe that Yeshua in a noble heroic act to save the sheep gave himself over to the enemy, that old serpent, the devil, as a substitute for the rest of humanity. The devil had humanity in his grasp, but he agreed to trade humanity if he could have the Son of God. And the devil tortured him, beat him, put him to death on the cross. But what he didn't know was the promise of the resurrection. I'll develop this more next week. If you don't see it, that's fine. If you don't agree with me, that's fine too. We can still love one another. But this is the teaching on my understanding of the atonement.